Right. <laughs> All right. Welcome to First Impressions, the podcast where we talk about our love for Jane Austen and our hatred for all the Brontes. No, just kidding. <laughs> and give a big middle finger to all those haters. What you just heard at the beginning of this podcast is a selection from an excerpt from Kate Bush's song, Wuthering Heights, which I watched today for the first time in the music video. And highly recommend. You saw it too, right, Maggie? Oh, I made it through about half. <laughs> And then I had to turn it off because it was so offensive to my ears and my eyes. <laughs> so I, I could not make it through the whole thing. It was so bad. It's extraordinarily <laughs> literal. But it's like, I'm Kathy, let me in, I'm cold. Yeah. Um, oh. I don't know why she decided to sing that register. I will, because maybe it sounds spooky or something. I will say that I do love another Kate Bush song. They just discovered recently called Running Up That Hill. It's one of the like it's one of my favorite songs ever now. And I discovered it totally by random accident. It was a crossword puzzle clue. And so yeah, check it out. Kate Bush. Running Kristen, up that when hill. Did, when did this become a Kate Bush podcast? It, it became a Kate Bush podcast when you started dissing Kate Bush in <laughs> okay, her, that's fair. her that's vocal fair. stylings. Let's do an episode one day where it's us just defending various things that we like to each other. <laughs> <That> we like. <laughs> okay, but Kristen, we're not talking about Jane Austen today, are we? No, we are not. We um, want to thank our listeners. We were we decided to do a fundraiser. If we raised over $200 for Black Lives Matter or for another uh, cause related to racial justice or charity related to racial justice, we said we would engage with material that we do not enjoy. It is <laughs> <laughs> Weathering Heights by Emily Bronte. And uh, we read it in high school. We really didn't like it. And so now we're revisiting it. And we didn't have to read the book. We only had to watch the 1992 movie with Rafe Fiennes and Juliet. I don't know how to say her last name. Um, Do you? Benichet? No. It's she, Juliet Binoche, yeah. Who no, was uh, really had her big break in The English Patient, also starring Rafe Fiennes. What's going on with these two crazy kids? They just can't <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> Oh, but Kristen, before we get into the movie, we have some new business. New business? Um, I am very pleased to announce that we are going to have a new co-host on the podcast soon. Oh boy. Yeah, I thought that we needed sort of a like young, fresh male perspective. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I, so I, I hope you're ready because starting in March, we're going to have a new co-host, which is <gasps> baby Maggie's Maggie son. Baby. I am pregnant. And yay! 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 Yes, I'm pregnant. I am, was very sick for a long time, but now I'm not. Now I'm back. So <laughs> yes, um, I am so excited when Maggie March. told me I just screamed and yeah, was like, reenact it? okay, let's reenact the moment where I told Kristen. Cause Kristen was the, like the first friend that I told actually, um, I called my mom and then Bay and I were like, okay, we're not going to tell anybody for a while. Cause you know, they say not to tell a lot of people for a while, but I, you know, it's, it was burning up inside me. I had to tell someone. So Kristen and I were chatting and I whispered to her. So Bay wouldn't hear me. I said, Kristen, I'm pregnant. She ripped off her, her, her headphones. She jumped out of her chair. She started jumping up and down and she screamed, Kevin, Kevin, and then she was like, wait, is it okay if I tell Kevin? (laughs) And then Kevin in his typical manner was like, oh, cool. No, it was, we're very excited. We're also very terrified as you are, but, um, I appreciate you all understanding our little hiatus that we took it's because I was like really sick I was miserable it sounded um, awful for about six weeks uh it was pretty bad but I am back and ready to podcast so with that slight side let's get back to it I love it thank you for sharing your amazing news we're all so excited for you I am so excited for you yeah and so on that note we talk about weathering heights. <laughs> yeah, on that happy note, let's talk about something on completely that happy note. So I don't have- forget, though, Kristen, you have to call this Emily Bronte's Wuthering oh, Heights. Emily because Bronte. apparently a different movie studio er- no- owned the rights to the name Wuthering Heights. And so every time they promoted this film without the Emily Bronte in front of it, they had to pay Paramount <laughs> money oh. for copyright violation. <laughs> Yeah, and you you texted me at the beginning. You're like, they're having Emily Bronte narrate it. This is the worst. Oh, it was such a dumb framing device, I thought. The movie starts with an uncredited Sinead O'Connor, like, what? As Emily Bronte, like, (laughs) stumbling across this old derelict mansion in the middle of the moors and being like, this is how I got the idea for this novel. Let me tell you about this sad story. And it's just like, okay, like, I know this is based on a novel. (laughs) <laughs> no, and I, I was actually a bit jealous because uh, normally when they do a Jane Austen intro framing device, they have to talk like the most British accent, and it's so yeah. annoying. It's so annoying the way they do it. And so Emily Bronte got to be like this creepy, like I have a little sexy voice, and I'm going to tell you something fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> what, did she, what did she say? She was something like, there will be no smiles in this oh, yeah, tale. Right. And I was like, oh, great. Like, now I'm just going to be, I know I'm going to be super depressed. Awesome. Are you ready to be unhappy? Well, I will tell, I will tell you, I was, I was unprepared for some of this movie. I had forgotten about the characters that come later in the book, which I'll call Wuthering Heights Gen Z. Generation two, Wuthering Heights 2.0, right? All the kids of the the original cast. And I've forgotten, actually, that there's a, well, sort of, well, okay, I'll just call it. I've forgotten there was a happy ending uh, of sorts. Of yes. Sorts. 
Some characters get a happy ending, oh, I guess. redemption, a rainbow. To quote one reviewer that I read about on the Wikipedia page for this book, which is basically how in-depth I went on my research on this, um, they had, the Wikipedia page has a lot of critical reception, like, quotes. And one was talking about the dreary slog of reading this book. And then you're just so torn apart and you're you're so affected by the drama and then there's a beautiful rainbow that comes out at the end and honestly that's exactly how I felt about it I was just glad it was over well I wept I honestly oh Kristen you cry at the drop of a hat it's true and I don't know what was up with me last night but I just started weeping and there there is a thing uh, in media like any kind of story that will trigger me and I don't mean trigger as like PTSD but will, will make me start weeping crying not weeping, but crying. And that is kindness to people who have been acting horribly and don't necessarily deserve Deserve it. it, Like like compassion and forgiveness, maybe. Yeah. Just forgiveness. Um, you know, showing mercy, a redemption when, when you're least expecting it. And I remember when we went to Les Mis and you were, I, started crying really, really early. And you were like, oh my God, Kristen's already crying. But it's this, this, the scene in Les Miserables where uh, Jean Valjean steals the silver from the church. Oh, and the priest is like, just take it. You obviously need it. And then he, he acts, the priest says, rather than telling the police who have brought Jean Valjean back and are going to turn. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, I know you're, yeah. Yeah, he he says this man has spoken true, but you you left you the forgot. best. Forgot, yeah, you forgot this. Gives him more silver, and honestly, just weep every time. And then oh. at the end, where Valjean is dying, and he obviously is ascending into a higher plane, and Fantine is and uh, Fantine is singing to him, and take uh, my hand and lead me to salvation. That part, yes. And um, what's a girl's name? Eponine. Uh, Take my there. love, for love is everlasting. Yeah, that part gets me too. And, that, and then sing the next next line the, about the faith. Remember oh. the truth that once was spoken. To love another person is to see the face of God. That part. Oh, oh it just gets it. Because that's the part where the priest is in and he yeah. starts singing. And I'm just like. Oh my god! Oh, no, don't start crying on the call. Okay, um, we should also get a spoiler warning for *Wuthering <laughs> Like we're gonna talk about the whole movie, which I mean, I haven't read the book in probably like twenty-five years, so let's assume that it, you know, it's gonna end the same way and follow the plot. So just if you haven't, if you don't want to be spoiled for *Wuthering Heights*, a book that's like two hundred years old, uh, <laughs> you've had some time. But I don't. I mean, I think it's the relentless trauma the relentless abuse and everybody who is in on it i mean there is not one character other than maybe edgar linton who is who is worth rooting for at the end everybody is such a shit they're all Um, horrible people but but they all abusing each other and it's relentless and so that's when you get really broken down mentally by this book I think I, I texted you this too. I, I don't, they didn't have the vocabulary for this when the book was written, but I think the point was this idea of like generational trauma. Like you are forced to reenact these things that happened to you 
by your yes. like fathers and by their father, like this kind of idea that like trauma passes through the generations and no one can escape, which obviously like that, that vernacular did not exist when this book was written. But I was just trying to think like, why, what is the point of this? Like, what is the point she's making? And that's kind of the only, like you have to break the cycle kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say with, with Emily, you know, some other reviewer was saying these Bronte girls lived the most secluded life and they just, they weren't exposed to all these horrors that came out of their own brain. And so I don't know what, I don't know enough about the Brontes to know why she was trying to convey this sort of intergenerational trauma, but she obviously did. And I, I went back and read a Wikipedia article because again, that's how I'm rolling today about intergenerational trauma and one of the things it said was that it was kind of, they discovered it or kind of realized that it was happening when they realized how many grandchildren of Holocaust survivors mm-hmm. were made up a percentage of those seeking mental health at a certain yeah. time. And that's, you know, obviously when people have PTSD, which is what the article was referring to, like, it's going to affect everybody around you. It's not their fault, but it's going to affect everybody around you. Do you want me to try to do like a brief recap? I guess we can do like a brief recap in 30 seconds. Yeah, like like a super okay. brief one. So Heathcliff is the adopted son of this guy. When the older guy dies, the son mm-hmm. who's always jealous of him, who's played by Jeremy Northam, um, yes. treats Heathcliff so- like crap and basically abuses Heathcliff, forces him to work as a stable hand. But Heathcliff and his, I guess, adopted sister, kind of, Kathy, basically fall in love. But Kathy's this, like, free spirit. She's kind of a jerk. Like, she just, like, thinks everything's hilarious and isn't really too serious. And she ends up dating the neighbor, Edgar Linton, and he asks her to marry him. And she's like, well, I like him and I want to be rich. That'd be cool. I can't marry Heathcliff because he's been brought so low by my brother. So, okay, I'll do it. And then Heathcliff, like, runs off, comes back years later, having gotten all this money and basically bought the mortgage on Wuthering Heights, the family home. So now he has made it his job to revenge himself on the family that treated him so poorly. Um, Kathy has a daughter with her husband and ends up dying, but Heathcliff is still totally obsessed with her and, like, curses her to wander the moor forever as a ghost so she'll never leave his side. He, through various machinations, like, destroys the Linton family. Her daughter, Kathy's daughter, who looks just like her, he ends up tricking her into marrying his son, so then he'll have all of that family's money and property. Um, He, like, traps her in the house, and everyone's treated like crap, and then in the end, everyone dies. Oh, except (laughs) for young Kathy and the, his, okay, Young Kathy and Jeremy Northam's son, who Heathcliff <laughs> turned into the stable hand and abused just like he was, he that stable hand guy falls in love with young Kathy and she loves him and they end up being free when Heathcliff dies and like running away and being happy. Yes, and like as we said, there's so much. Um, the book is so long and every scene is so painstakingly detailed, the horrible things these people visit on each other. And here I am going into reading a Bronte book for the first time in high school, thinking it was going to be just like Jane Austen and being like, what the fuck? And thinking this is horrible. This is not what real people are like and I can't relate to it or identify it. And here's something that's so important that when I first started to turn my thoughts back to Wuthering Heights, I made a I made a stupid joke on Twitter 
I um, started to Google why is Wuthering Heights good because I wanted to read some criticism, but I wanted to get straight to the heart of the matter so I could come on here and intelligently say why some people liked it. That I thought that Google string was hilarious. So, I mean, I was I was doing a tongue in cheek, right? So I posted it on Twitter. And then because there's a podcast, Bonnets at Dawn, that the, their handle is like Austin versus Bronte, right? Like, like, awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. And, and I tagged them because I know they've talked about Wuthering Heights. I know they've talked about Heathcliff and all this. So I tagged them and, and I said, hey, Bonnet's a Don. Is Wuthering Heights good? <laughs> and um, Lauren, kind, uh, one of the co-hosts on Bonnet's a Don, Lauren, kindly, um, you know, countenanced me being ridiculous and came back and said, and she, and she has given me permission to share her comments uh, on this podcast. She came back and said, ha ha, it's not for everyone, especially those that approach it as a love story. But I have lots of feelings attached to that book. As a lonely black teen in an all-white school, I was drawn to the isolation, anger, and otherness, which often alienate readers. Um, and she also added, she's talked to about Heathcliff and race on the show and um, linked to an article about whether Heathcliff was actually black. And I was wondering that too. Yeah. Actually, sorry. Yeah. No, there's scholarship on. on this and there are some, there are some touchstones that people kind of look at, but when, what, when I read that, it totally stopped me in my tracks. And like, do you ever have a feeling of some, some new piece of information, like literally hitting you on the forehead? Like you could visualize this information going into your brain. It would just like knock you back because maybe that's a weird way to say it. But it definitely startled me into thinking about this work more seriously. And I'll say, I'll, I'll say uh, why. It's because uh, this is what privilege looks like, right? Like yeah. when I was into Jane Austen, um, I was suffering. Uh, I obviously had severe mental health issues. But I was also a white middle class American girl who had all of my baser needs on Maslow's pyramid, right, satisfied. And I wasn't being othered in any way by the people around me. Uh, my problem was in my mind, right? And so when you turn to literature that speaks to you, it's no surprise that I was reading Austin where everyone's rich and their problems are, I might become slightly less rich. And also I have a lot of emotions going on and I'm surrounded by people who don't understand me and it's an emotional, it's an inner life. Austin writes about inner lives. And that's why I was attracted to it because my inner life was where the problem lay, right? But other things will speak to other readers. And certainly we're talking about Jane Eyre and the poor and plain sort of marginalized poor Jane Eyre as governess. Obviously this book can speak to people who are feeling that kind of alienation and being othered and being left out yeah. the way Heathcliff is pushed out of the, the higher social class, right? The Lintons and all their beautiful clothes and their parties. Yeah. I think when you mentioned that to me, it was like, just like you were saying, just like stop in your tracks, gasp a moment, because I had never, ever, ever considered that. And I, I can certainly understand why it would appeal to someone, I guess. But the, the problem I have though with the film, that part only lasts like two minutes. We don't really see the t like the extent of his treatment, yeah. and it seems very clear to me that Heathcliff is the villain. 
Yeah, and from- it bothers me that this idea, like we're supposed to, like maybe understand or forgive his behavior because I don't know. Like, there's a lot of issues going on here related to that. In terms of wondering whether he was supposed to be a man of color, I during this adaptation, I was wondering that they refer to him several times. Like, I apologize for using this term because it is not kosher anymore. They refer to him as like quote a gypsy. And so that is kind of like starts the bells ringing in my head, like, wait a minute, maybe he's not supposed to be like a straight white dude. But then I was thinking if they did cast a man of color, I'd probably have issues with the two because he is the villain. Mm -hmm. And I don't like the idea that that's the only character we see who would not be white. Right. So, and then the, the question goes back, what is Bronte trying to say with the with the racial, you know, element of it? And I think uh, it was like you were saying, like the othering of him, just one more reason why he's ostracized. This book addresses so many different kinds of abuse and abuse. <laughs> race, racism is part of that. Right. I mean, we yeah. don't have the context as Americans for uh, the word that you mentioned and why it's offensive. And Europeans, obviously, I mean, even in the plot of Emma, right, they come running in and they say, oh, Harriet's been, right. And, you know, the joke in Emma is that it wasn't a big deal. It was just some some children begging. But but even in the movie, I was surprised that even in the movie, they sort of kept that in. And, And don't you have a moment of kind of ickiness when Frank Churchill and Mr. Knightley are saying, oh, I'll let somebody know that they're in the neighborhood. And it's like, oh my God, you racist. Like I even feel bad about saying it even just now, like in quotation marks and with like a warning. I'm like, oh God, I hope I don't like, uh, it makes me feel really uncomfortable. Quoting directly from the text. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the big problem I've always had with Wuthering Heights, and this is like, it's interesting because this is kind of how Jane Austen gets mislabeled, but so many people think of Wuthering Heights as a romance and it's so deeply fucked up. Yes. And so I think I even texted you. I was like, why do people consider this a romance? This is, this is not, this is not good. There was a McSweeney's recently (laughs) where it was like Heathcliff wrote an article to all the, he was like, I apologize to all the 14 year olds who thought I was a romantic ideal. I apologize for all your future relationships being terrible because I realized I was not a good romantic role model to you. <clears throat> but even in that article, he like starts to fall apart and gets increasingly obsessed with Kathy. And it's just like really funny. But it's not romantic. There's nothing romantic or... I mean, Ray Fiennes is hot too. Like, let's not get it twisted. But yeah. even then you're like, ugh. I thought, I thought Ray Fiennes was hot in Schindler's List and I'm Jewish, okay? And I did <laughs> not think he was attractive in this. Because his character was so awful. Kathy takes a real long time in this movie before her true nature comes out. But she is no, really... never even saw it. She's so, like, mercurial, I guess. I don't know. I didn't have a good handle on her character at all. She's a real little shit. And in fact, what's interesting about the book... Because you were saying, I feel like they left out a lot of stuff. So I started to read the book. I was like, I'll never... Oh, did you reread? I was wondering. I started to reread out. And I was like, I'll never finish in time. But I read the beginning and I read the end. And um, one thing that they did leave into the Olivier version is that um, when Earnshaw brings Heathcliff home, Heathcliff becomes the favorite and Hindley is the one who's put down by his father. So that jealousy of Heathcliff actually has a bearing in the, again, the sins of the parent. And um, it definitely provides more context for Hindley's hatred of him. In the movie, 
it's just like immediate with that. And I didn't really understand. I was wondering, I was going to ask you, and maybe someone who's read the book recently can comment when we post this, but like, is this actually a good adaptation? Cause I felt like a lot of things were left. I didn't really remember like characters came kind of out of nowhere. And I felt like there was a lot of stuff that was left on the cutting room floor kind of. So I went back and I read Pride, Prejudice, and Popcorn, which has a section on Bronte adaptations. And I read her review of this adaptation and she said it was just sort of blah. And she said that she's like, a lot of things don't make sense. Like when Heathcliff's new wife, Isabella or whatever, uh, she just disappears. And you're like, wait, what? What happened well, she, to that lady? Yeah, and I think he mentions at some point she dies. But yes, well, also like he starts he starts hitting on her and stuff, but they've never actually said her name. She's just <laughs> been in the background, so you're like, oh, I guess that's that guy's sister. Like, I don't know who this girl is. But I will say to the filmmakers' credit, like we made the leap. We wondered, but we then made the leap and we figured it out. And it the fact is this this Gen Z is hella confusing to figure out who everybody is because of this marriage of Heathcliff's that's sort of really fast. And the fact that he somehow allowed her, uh, he beat her up. I mean, he, Heathcliff married this woman, abused her. Edgar Linton's sister, Isabella, I think, abused so her. Kathy's her, sister-in-law. Kathy's sister-in-law beat her, raped her. Then, Imprisoned then, her. Then she she runs away and hides with the help of Edgar Linton. I didn't realize this. I oh, read she it. does? Yes, yeah, she, she hides in London. She's able to escape Heathcliff, and she's supported by Edgar Linton, which is one of the feminist themes in this novel, right? And and uh, But she names her son Linton, which is her own last name. Yeah, it's super confused. So it's like Linton. So then when he Linton. comes home, he's like, I'm Linton, Heathcliff's son. And you're like, what? Because everyone else's last name is Linton. It's very confusing. But anyway, no. It, well, exactly right. So that's why people were saying this adaptation. But no, no two-hour Hollywood deal could possibly encompass everything that's going on. But can you imagine like a like a four hour miniseries no. adaptation? <laughs> no, I cannot. You'd be exhausted. You'd be so exa- broken down from the abuse because you get invested in these characters. You know, you get invested in Kathy, young Kathy, and no, I wasn't. <laughs> I was not. I was going to ask you if you actually liked this movie because I found it a total slog. Well, I always want to be invested in characters and then I'm put off by their, you know, when they're real shits and I can't be invested in them anymore, which is why I can't watch Curb Your Enthusiasm because Larry David is such a shitty person. There's absolutely no one to root for. You know what I mean? Um, But anyway, why did I start talking about Curb Your Enthusiasm? What I was saying is uh, (laughs) that the movie does a good job of holding off on Heathcliff and Kathy's bad qualities for a while. And so I, who didn't remember any of the details here, was getting invested at them at, in them at first and, and did think it was beautiful. I thought it was a beautiful looking movie, you know, when they're on the moors and those yeah, rocks. Yeah, that's interesting that he was like, even when he was not being abused, he was still like a total dick. Yeah. <laughs> so because in the film, it's definitely like, well, this need for revenge and to control all these people arises from this poor treatment he felt from all of like whether real or imagined, because I actually don't think Kathy really did anything that bad based on the film. No, um, as Jane Austen fans, we understand the choice that she makes. Right. When Heathcliff yeah. is 
all dirty and gross, and he's a farmhand. And then Edgar Linton is her social well, class the bride, right? Right, right. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, we he understand. Is like, he is Wesley, but it, Wesley was the sociopath. In fact, I think in in the in the book, her little monologue about how he's uh, he's degrading or whatever he would degrade me. Heathcliff hears that he leaves, and then apparently in the book. She says, I'm planning to take Linton's money, elevate Heathcliff, and keep him around me so we can have sort of like continue our emotional affair oh. or whatever. And and so, yeah, so can you blame her if she marries Linton? Because he's gone, and, you know, what is she supposed to do? Well, and even in the movie, think- even in the movie, like, she explicitly says when he can hear, she's like, the, the thing giving me pause is my heart. I love Heathcliff. I want, he's the one that I really love, but I can't marry him because he's been brought so low by my brother's treatment of him. And it's the society, like it would degrade me in society to marry, which I'm like, yes, girl, you know, she was, I got you. Yeah. The role of women, right. And the, the, the weird situation she's boxed into, you understand it, especially as an Austin fan, you understand it. And that's when she says, Nellie, I am Heath. Cliff, right that's supposed to be the big you know uh big romantic one of the big romantic lines and it's like that's kind of fucked up yeah <laughs> you know what I mean but actually I loved that speech I loved when she says you know my love for Linton is like foliage you know it's gonna turn and change and fall off and die but my I am Heathcliff it was it, a lot of the scenes in this movie were beautifully done and honestly a lot of the dialogue is straight from the book when Which people actually talk to each other, it's interesting. They're all good actors. It's just when they're treating each other like crap and being horrible and beating up each other. Well, just Heathcliff, really. Um, that you're just like, ugh. And it is hard to be to be mad at Jeremy Northam, partly because he's oh, so Oh, no, hot. it's not. He was a total asshole. He's so hot, though. But, yeah. Oh, I, okay. So, <laughs> you know, this is what I'm saying. I'm like, ooh, every time he comes on the screen, I'm like, ooh, Jeremy Northam, I'm so excited to look at you. Right? And... Yeah, and actually, what's not portrayed here is, I mean, he, he obviously has a gambling problem. That's how Heathcliff was able to buy Wuthering Heights out from under him. He's yeah. also abusive to Harriton, his son, who yeah. he has by a wife who dies pretty early. He has his son, Harriton. I think I'm saying it right. Harriton? Harriton? Uh, abuses him to the point where he almost drops him off a railing, like a stair railing. And Heathcliff, who's underneath, catches the boy and then is mad that he didn't let the boy die. I mean, this is the kind of people that you're constantly being regaled with in this book. Sorry, question. Do we know where Heathcliff got all his money from? Because he disappears for, I think, like two or three years. And when he comes back, he's been able to buy Wuthering Heights. But do they ever explain how he made his money? Not in the movie. I don't know if they did in the book. And I was just telling Kevin this uh, recently when I was like, that part of the movie happened. And I just envisioned that gif of Elle Woods saying, what, like it's hard? Like it's hard? (laughs) (laughs) But you really only need one line. He comes back and he goes something like, I now own Wuthering Heights. Like Hindley mortgaged it to the hilt with his gambling debts and I was able to buy. And it's like, okay, but just also add in like, I made my fortune in dot, 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 like one sentence. No, and he doesn't. And then there's this whole interrogation by Edgar Linton, like, oh, did you come into your inheritance? Which is sort of like he did. He was found on the street. Like, what are you? Or or you must have done some soldiering. You look very fit. Yeah, like, no, oh, no, I dot, this is what I did. (laughs) 
Like yeah. I served in, oh, oh, I joined the Navy and we sunk a, going back to our first episode joke, I sunk a French frigate <laughs> yeah. and I got this t-shirt and also like a lot of gold. Like yeah. just something like, I mean, just, it's gotta be in the novel. It seems like a pretty huge plot hole, but you know, but Jane Austen does it all the time too. Remember at the end of Northanger Abbey? Yeah. She's like, oh, by the way, this guy died and now everything's great. Yeah, or like goddamn Frank Churchill, everything works out for him. <laughs> yeah, so well, you never know. Maybe something like that happened, but it's I still would have appreciated, you know, just a line of dialogue to kind of explain. Yeah, there exactly. Well, and you really stick with Kathy. You think, okay, I can understand her decisions up until the point where she's been married for two years. She's happy with Edgar. Heathcliff returns, and then Heathcliff and Edgar have a confrontation. And instead of siding with her husband, Heathcliff, uh, you know, I think threatens to beat her husband. And instead of siding with her husband, she goes and she locks the door and throws away the key. So they have to fight. Says, yeah, Edgar, you're she's not allowed to have anybody she's helping. She's such a you. drama queen. And that is incredible. I mean, he's been Kathy is one of those people who's like, why is every, why is there always so much drama around me? And then she's like on Twitter, like posting shit about people. Oh my God. And you were saying the only person that you can really like is Ellen, AKA Nellie, the, um, the one sane person to be the confidant. Right. But I think that she loves mess as much as any of them. Because oh, I did why not did, get that. Why didn't she say Kathy Heathcliff is eavesdropping on us? She did. At the but end only of the after he left. But only after he left. Oh, but that's more like I thought plot service than actually oh, her being a jerk. I guess I um, she's supposed to be like the the like sideways eyes and then like uh, uh, like jerking her head like yo <laughs> does Heathcliff really need to get revenge on the Lintons as well? I mean, can you really blame? Well, I guess blames them for taking away Kathy in the first place. Right? Yes, and for making him feel small, right? Like they don't invite him to stay along with Kathy when Kathy gets bit by the dog because they're freaking trespassing. Kathy yeah. gets bit by a dog. She gets to stay. Heathcliff is not invited to stay. She's so he a filthy stable hand. Like, yeah. not, but they have invited a servant in to and like he a swears. He swears they don't want him to be a bad influence on their kids because the kids are actually really young in the book when that happens. So like now, like when they're all adults, it doesn't make quite as much sense except we're like yeah he's a servant he's he's dirty he's like yeah, I mean, so when i say filthy i mean like literally he was covered yeah, dirty, right like not like right. a filthy servant like he was literally really dirty <laughs> i wouldn't want him sitting on my damask couch right and then kathy has her irritates herself into brain fever over all of this nonsense that has, is oh that makes me so mad this like making herself physically ill shit like that is some emotional blackmail Yes, and she did. She did not. I just want to make it clear. She was not ill. It wasn't like Marianne and Sense and Sensibility, where she like is really sad, but she goes outside and does something stupid and gets exposure and like actually gets the flu. It wasn't like that. She just like physically was able to make herself sick to punish people. Yes, really messed up. It's really messed up. And then Heathcliff comes as she's dying. One of the things I thought was really interesting is this. This uh, story involves two women dying in childbirth. Hendley's Yeah, that was not pleasant for me to watch either. I was like, can we not have the horrible birth scenes, please? Like when I'm stressed already. I thought it was interesting that it showed two parallel different shots of Hendley and Edgar crying while their wives were in labor. 
showing their devotion and true love of these women, right? They can't bear to think that they're suffering and might die. And of course they both do. Cliff well, Kathy does survive like maybe a couple days afterwards. Yeah, Cause Cliff, Keith Cliff gets the chance to do the big emotional climax of the first part of the film where he says, I cannot live without my life. I cannot live without my soul or whatever. I, um, I took, I took notes on, on this. I thought Ray Fiennes did a really good job um, portraying this, but you know, obviously he's not Olivier, but the, the dialogue was very affecting. I was very affected and it was sort of like echoes of persuasion where it's like, why did you betray your own heart is th- and then I wrote, like, is this what love looks like? Does somebody read this and think, yes, that's love? And didn't I text you something like Marianne Dashwood would just like fucking love this novel? Yes, she would have been so here for the mess. And then, yeah, but said, that's what I'm talking about. This is not romantic. These people are toxic and terrible. And you like that McSweeney article is so funny because I could actually see like 13, 14 year olds reading this and be like, that's what love is. And that's why they go after these terrible men and put up with them treating them so badly. Even when she's dying, they're cursing each other, talking about how they love each other, but they hate each other. He has a line. I love my murderer, but yours. How can I? Well, I thought he was talking about her daughter. He was talking about baby Kathy. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Boy, I I misunderstood that. Or because she kind of like a, it wasn't explicitly said like, be nice to my daughter. But I thought he was basically telling her, I'm going to treat your daughter like awful, terribly because Mm -hmm. she killed you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Kind of. Fair enough. I don't know. I just, it's so bad. I don't. (sighs) You know, I, I, really I do, she does say like they make out at some point, like before she's pregnant and she goes, if you kiss me again, I shall die. And then the next time he kisses her is right before she dies. And, well, they keep saying these prophetic things. I, I enjoyed at the beginning of the movie where they're on the sunny moor and they're having such a good time as carefree children, right? Youths, young adults. And he's like, kisses her. And he's like, open your eyes. If you see a sunny sky your life will be happiness but if you see stormy skies your life will be awful and doesn't take a look around him <laughs> so she opens her eyes she opens her eyes in front of her it is sunny but then they turn around and see the huge thunderstorm and she goes what did you do i thought that was funny <laughs> maybe take a glance at the full horizon before you're saying all this prophetic shit and yeah no but i i, I was weeping the the, we, the thing that made truly touched me was not this ridiculous theatricals by the people who don't understand what love even is and don't understand what it is to truly love and not be selfish and do something for somebody else's benefit. They they just never act that way. They're just selfish upon selfish upon selfish, but then all the kids, right? So the first thing that you're horrified by with Gen Z is that Hindley, when he dies of his alcoholism or whatever, Jeremy Northam, Jeremy Northam, Heathcliff takes his son, Harrison, who was the rightful heir of the estate at one point, no longer, and says, let's see if one tree can grow as crooked as another, and takes him for a avowed, stated life of abuse. Like, he well, intends in the, to... In the, in the movie, they just, like, the Emily Bronte narrator is just like, 
he took Hindley and treated him the same way that he was. And so he, Hindley is now made the, uh, is that how you pronounce the name? Hindley? I, I, I was just going for Whatever. it. He's made the stable hand just as Heathcliff was and is like degraded and brought low. He can't even read, right? He's just pushed down, which is horrifying. And, you know, how can you ever be in Heathcliff's corner, right? And then Kathy has this happy life and gets to grow baby up. Kathy, like baby Kathy, baby Kathy, Kathy 2.0 has a happy life until she sneaks away from Nellie when she's like, cause she's also a hellraiser. Of course she sneaks I, away. I did like her though. I thought she, she's more spunky rather than like awful. Yeah. In the, in the book, she definitely has the sullens as bad as Kathy does, but she redeems herself. Right. Um, and you know, you can't blame her because what happens is Linton, the, Son Heathcliff's of Heathcliff's son. Heathcliff's Heathcliff's son. son, who has been hidden from Heathcliff until his mother dies. Heathcliff takes his son, whose first name is Linton. I know, I know, who is dying of a consumption. But in the movie, again, never made clear why he's dying. Kathy <laughs> just shows up one day and he's dying. But and Heathcliff he has- basically reads out a letter for Linton to write, luring her back, like where Linton says he loves, like Kathy 2.0. I loved that device because I didn't know what was happening. And so when Heathcliff was dictating this letter about how he loves Kathy 2.0, I was like, oh man, he sees the original Kathy in this baby. And now his love is going to transfer to her, to the, to the child. Oh, the young no, Kristen. It's all, and then he's like, sign your name. And sign your like, name. Okay. It's a ruse for Linton to marry Kathy. And honestly, the inheritance part was very confusing to me because Heathcliff's, but because first of all, apparently Kathy's baby is Edgar Linton's heir. And I didn't understand how that worked. Oh, and then, see, that was all pretty clear to me. Like, it was very clear that this was all, he wanted to control all of Wuthering Heights. And now he wanted to control all of Edgar Linton's property and wealth as a, another punishment. Oh, for sure. His motivations were clear. But then I get bogged down in the legalities. Like, why? Yeah. You know, and, and, and I think you're and, in like a Jane Austen, like entail frame of mind yeah. like, where Kathy couldn't inherit. She's a woman, but that's not the case. So he lures Kathy back, marry, forces her, imprisons her and forces her to marry his on death door son that night. And then the son dies like not too long later. And he's like, here's my son's will. It leaves everything to me. Ha 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 ha. And she's like, fuck you, which I really appreciated. One of the things that does not become clear at all is Linton's motivations. Is he just too sick to care and will do whatever Heathcliff wants? And he, I think he's also been, I mean, he does in the movie, it is not clear that he has not been with Heathcliff his whole life. And so I assumed he'd just been beaten down. Oh, got was it. Self abused and just did whatever this guy said to try not to make him mad. Like you never want to make your abuser mad. Right. So he just like, and he was very weak. He was sick. So he did whatever Heathcliff told him to do. Linton, you know, is kind of a cipher of a character, but he's just a plot device to get. Yeah, he's not around. He doesn't get a lot of screen time. Yeah, he's just a plot device for Heathcliff to have imprisoned Kathy, forced her to become his daughter-in-law. One thing that makes me really happy, though, is he allows Kathy 2.0 to go visit her father, Edgar Linton, on his deathbed. And they had she can see him one last time because she has grown up in a, a house of love and she loves her father. And there's so little of that going on in this story that I was just so happy. And it honestly like got misty, blah, blah, blah. But then she has to go back and be this prisoner. And 
and what what I really liked is that she, even though at first she's incredibly depressed and Harrington tries to be nice to her, she was like, you were a party to imprisoning me. Yeah, you know, they have it out me. where like he want they he she wanted him to be nice to her. He was too afraid to do it. They actually they actually become friends because he's like, you never liked me. And she's like, what are you talking about? You let this happen. You never like helped me or reached out to me. And it was like this big crazy misunderstanding. But then they end up being friends and kind of like the Heathcliff, Kathy childhood love story gets repeated. It was incredibly affecting because they're in this horrible house with this tyrant who's abusing both of them. But they find love, like, they make their happy home in, yeah. in the kitchen with Nellie. They, they, she reaches out to him. He rejects her and she keeps trying. She gives him a book. She kisses him. And he finally admits to himself that he loves her. Cause of course he does. Right. Yeah. And then, yes. And they, what is interesting is they show true love by respecting each other's desires. And Harrison, who was, who was abused by Heathcliff and also abused by his biological father for some reason feels that Heathcliff is his father and feels like affection for him and doesn't he he's like, Oh, Heathcliff's sad. And that's sad. He can look past his abuse somehow. There's well, yeah, because he's actually a good person. Whereas he's, he's a good, he's yes, always a piece of shit. He's a genuine somehow like, I mean, despite everything he's gone through, he is a good person, and that's the redemptive part of the redemptive things about it. And when I started weeping the first time was that when he flips being all mean to them, he, you know, Kathy's baiting him. And Oh, oh um, no, this part was great. This part was great. So she's being a total sassy bitch to Heathcliff. And he's like, don't make me hit you. And she's like, oh, I'm not worried about it because Harriton will defend me. And Heathcliff, like, forgot that this guy is now like grown up and buff as hell and he's old. And when he does go to strike her, he's like, uh, uh-uh, bra. And it's like, Oh shit, you can't abuse them anymore because you're going to get your ass kicked. I love that kind of story where like the person is finally kind of big enough to fight back. Well, what happens, what I thought was going on was that Heathcliff pauses, looks away and looks back and realizes in that moment that he's grown baby Kathy and baby Heathcliff, right? Harriton is a, a avatar for his younger self and that they now have the kind of bond that he had with Kathy where he would do anything for her. And instead of ruining them, he realizes he can't lift a hand against his own past. Well, and what also is going on there, Kristen, which I thought was pretty clear is that's when he first sees Kathy ghost. Oh, right, 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 right. And yeah, he looks it. over, he's getting ready to hit Kathy 2.0 and he looks it over her shoulder and like instantly freezes and is like, uh, and kind of does that. Like, <laughs> does anybody else see this thing? But no, no one else acts like anything is weird. And so I think the implication is that he's now seen original Kathy's ghost. Yeah, there's ghosts, guys. Guys, there's, there's, there's ghosts. Come on, there's a ghost in the very first scene when Lockwood, that putts. Just some rando shows up who's lost in the storm. (laughs) The tenant at the Grange is lost in the storm, comes. And in the book, which I did read, so the the boughs tap on the windows. They break through the windows. He grabs them, and it's a child's hand, which is horrifying. But then the book, he, like, rubs it against the broken glass to try to get it to stop grabbing him and like the blood runs down the windowsill and I was like Jesus Christ this is the most <laughs> thing ever. is this yeah. like Henry James what is happening <laughs> but 
back to the scene with Heathcliff where he almost hits Cappy, then he stops, and then, then he goes outside. And what made me weep the first time was when Harrington goes out, touches, touches him on the shoulder, and says, come back and finish your dinner. Because that was so unlooked for. That gesture of kindness is really the, one of the first major gestures of kindness. And I, as I said, again, it's a gesture of kindness when someone doesn't really deserve it because their actions have been so horrible. That's what always moves me to tears. And so I was crying and crying. And I was like, we, we need to find this, you know, we, we need to find this spark of love where we can all come together, right? Oh, and, that made me mad. This is the difference between you and me. I was like, don't, don't tell him to finish his dinner. This man's horrible to you. He abuses you. This I just saw it as like another way that Harrison had been like beaten down where now he like still has to look after, I don't know. No, I think that your interpretation is probably correct. This is the difference between Hufflepuff and Gryffindor, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Where I'm like, this is your chance. Like, hit him over the head and make a run for it. But this is this kind of state of mind I was in where I was was very fragile. And like, okay, we've made our like political affiliations known on this show before. But for whatever reason, I just feel like we're being graded on with relentlessly, you know, catastrophe after catastrophe, awfulness all around us, every so much hate, you know, there's no, I I realize I sound really cheesy. It's not cheesy in my head. I was just feeling exhausted. I was feeling because I had come away from the rest of my day. I also happen to be, so my cause, right, is, is climate change, right? I don't talk about it on the podcast a lot, but I do climate change activism. And so I happen to be sort of really keyed in to what the consequences are going to be, especially from a social justice perspective and millions of people are going to become refugees and there will be famine. You know what I mean? And, and the so, West Coast is like literally on fire. Right it's now. been very, Listen, I don't think that you ever need to apologize or justify being moved by a moment of grace okay. in an well, act of fiction like that. What you're saying makes total sense to me. Why you would find that. I, then moment. I couldn't stop weeping because I wasn't even watching the movie anymore. I was like, when will it, when will it end? Where is it? When will we find this path forward? And blah, blah, blah. And, and, and so then I just basically wept the rest of the movie, including when Heath, Kathy, the ghost of Kathy, comes for Heathcliff. He, he, he dies and becomes a ghost with her. And even though he has no claim on my investment at all, I, I shouldn't even want this for him. I'm like weeping and weeping. I'm like, oh, it's finally See, over at last. We again, this this made me so mad. The end of this movie, that ending made me so mad because it's like he acts horrible to everyone around him his entire life. And you're telling me that he gets to die, get off the hook and end up with her forever. That is bullshit. That is like the happy ending when people are separated by terrible. So that's like the Titanic ending (laughs) when Rose and Jack are finally reunited and everyone's applauding. And it's like, well, finally with death, they can be. No, Heathcliff does not deserve that. And it made me really, really mad. I'm just going to say that it made me angry. I did not like it. That's when I had the question of, are they really He should have wandered the moors alone. 
really he should have and well and that's what that's what i was wondering is like are they are we supposed to understand them as happy together yes they they were sitting under a tree with a beautiful sky smooching like that is not purgatory that's true that's like oh we're finally our love is we're finally together and we can be no they still walk so I read, I went back and I read the end of the book and also Emily Bronte narrates that some see him still walking. And so I'm like, is he a tormented, tortured soul who never, who, you know what I mean? Uh, but you're right. But the book, the, the movie definitely implies that they are together in the afterlife. They are happy. They are finally reunited and can be together. Like they always should have been. Thanks. I hate it. I did not <laughs> like it. Um, I see what you're saying about how like some, the villagers still say that he walks these moors still. But you know what? Like Kathy loved the moors. They both loved, it was the only place they were free. There's a lot in the beginning of the movie of them like riding horses off together into the moors because when they're away from Wuthering Heights, that's when they can be together. They can be them true selves. So this like idea of them even as ghosts on the moors, they loved the moors. That's where they were happy. It's, it's like a happy ending. So well, I did not appreciate it. I like I like it when villains get their comeuppance. <laughs> yeah. There should be right. a comeuppance. Because he is a villain. There is nothing. Ridiculous. There's no doubt. There is no doubt. Just obsession with Kathy is not redeeming. It, it They're not. They don't, he does not love it her. Destroyed so many lives. Yeah, he cursed her when she was on her deathbed. That That is not love. And... And I, when you, you do, when you first see it coming, that Harrison and Kathy 2.0 were going to be, fall in love, that's when I became reinvested. And so when they are elevated, because now they own everything. They own the grain. Yeah, so and they when Heathcliff dies, like, they actually inherit everything. They get to be together in life and happiness and, like, make everything nice again, which was, that was nice. You know, like, you can break the cycle, Yes, you can escape the cycle. And I was just weeping. They're running and these horses and they stop and they kiss. And you're like, oh, my God, it's true love. And they're going to be happy. And they finally have shaken off this this horrible burden of the generation. Again, it wasn't through any of their actions that they actually get a happy ending. It's just Heathcliff happened to die. No, no, no. It was through their actions, right? Oh, you mean because she, like, put the visitor in the bedroom that ghost Kathy would come to? No, it's because both she and Harriton made moves to support the other while Heathcliff was still alive. Harriton apparently took her part in arguments with Heathcliff. Okay, so they were able to, like, basically hold him back from hurting them any further for a while because it... I mean, I guess I see what you're saying, but they could never totally... They were never actually free until Heathcliff just happens to die that day. Right. Well, and that, that, that freedom allows them to finally be together, right? And I don't think Heathcliff was averse to that in the end. He was just, like, too tired to fight it anymore. And while his original intention was to destroy them, he saw in the very abusive environment that he created the love that he had with the original Kathy springing up again, because that's what hope does. Right? Yes. That's, I think you're giving him way too much credit. <laughs> no, he's just, he's, and he does say a strange change is coming Nellie. Now question is, does he say that in the book or does he say that in the movie? He says it in both. I in fact okay. just read the passage. Yeah. 
he loses his desire for revenge because he's seen the same kind of love that he had growing in this wasteland. Okay, and that was not made clear to me with this film. And that's, you know, I was saying, I actually don't think, not even having read the book at all recently, I was thinking like, I don't think this is a good adaptation because stuff just felt weird. Well, and I should walk it back. That's my interpretation. That literal thing that I said where he sees their love and is happy about it, that's not in the book. In fact, he says up until his death, keep them away from me. I don't want to see their faces. So that was me reading into why he didn't want to see them. Like he doesn't have a moment where he's like, I'm nice Heathcliff now. Um, but, but I think that's why he becomes tired. And he does say to Nellie, a strange change is coming. You know, I can feel it. I can feel it over me. So do you um, think he gets his happy ending because he has like redeemed himself somewhat? No, I don't know. I think it, I don't, no. I don't think that. Yeah. I think it's, he just gets it. Cause he's, it's a Gothic story. Right. Yeah. So and like, like this, I, so like, it's so romantic of these like two ghosts finally, yeah. but again, like that's your Titanic happy ending. This is not, you're like a oh, two horrible people. <laughs> you're like, there was room on that fucking door. I don't want to hear about this. <laughs> you know, like I could have had a real happy ending, but uh, everything but this, about this, this is like a serial killer and like someone who knew what he was and didn't do anything and like aided him somewhat like, oh, but we're together in death. Like, whatever. I don't know. I was just this movie. I was glad when it ended. <laughs> I was just like the, the redemption was my rainbow. I mean, I I was not in a good place. And this movie put me very much not in a good place. And then for whatever stupid reason, because I was watching a beautiful period drama and it had like a nice awe at the end. The rainbow is a perfect way to describe it. I try to think like would 13 year old Maggie have reacted differently because I've stated many times like my love affair with Sean Bean started when I saw him in Clarissa and he is also awful yeah so I'm wondering if like young teenage me would have like been oh my god he's so hot like he's so like he's horrible but he's like so hot and and been like yeah this movie's great and I don't I don't know if I can answer that because obviously it's been a long time since then but I mean like I get the appeal I can see why people would be like oh god it's so tragic it's fantastic and And some people love those sad sad stories you know and I, I was not, I didn't with the book. I basically was a Jane Austen Karen who finished Wuthering Heights and asked to speak to the manager because it was not catering to my uh, sensibilities and tastes of everybody's rich and outside tr- world doesn't trouble us. And our main problem is someone's getting in our goddamn nerves. That is the world that I was expecting and was not accommodated by. This book did not accommodate me. It it didn't, I wasn't open to listening to what it had to say about abuse because I myself was not in a, a parallel situation. And so I apologize to anybody who this book is important to from, for any re- emotional reason, you have to be attached to it that I kind of just tossed it aside and said, this is not for this is this sucks. But I didn't say this is not for me. I said, this oh, is well, absolute I trash. I won't apologize. I actually, to be <laughs> completely honest, 
I, well, we've always said like some people like something, some things, some people don't like other things. So, you know, I read, I don't think I actually even read the whole novel. I think I started it and like this, I got to that. So it starts with that like flash forward where the guy shows up in the thunderstorm and they put him in the, and I was just like, this is not for me. I didn't like the prose. I didn't like, and then like there's ghosts. I get, I've just never been a Gothic person, I guess. The prose is pretty thick. I mean, it, it you you're definitely wading through it. There's so much detail, and it's more Dickensian than not us. Yeah, and I mean, listen, like we read Austen, like we get it. Yeah. A lot of people can't handle that. Well, this uh, is very different than Austen. I, yeah, I think but I'm saying like we're talking harder. even like yeah. more hard to penetrate, impenetrable prose. Ooh, Ooh, I, I like that. I'm going to open up my phone here because I screenshotted various things that I read throughout the day that I thought, ooh, this is good. I should talk about. And one of the things that I really was impressed by is people were talking about the marriage of what I think is most interesting is the marriage of the original Kathy to Edgar Linton. She, as it says here in the Wikipedia article, uh, she shapeshifts in order to marry Edgar Linton by assuming a domesticity that is contrary to her true nature. She's play acting with Edgar. I mean, they're well, happy. I mean, in the movie, they seem pretty happy. I mean, they like, again, all I happy. can speak to is the film. But they um, also like, seem very he goes, Like, Heathcliff goes away for a couple years, and when he comes back, she's really happy to see him because he's, like, her dear friend who she loved, and she's so glad he's back. But, like, th- her relationship with Edgar, she seems pretty cool and happy. Yeah, yeah it seems great. So she's shifted into what what society would want want from her. And then what else are you supposed to do though if you have to marry someone for economic reasons? uh, What are you gonna do? Like sit around I mean, I guess you would expect her to sit around and be miserable the whole time. But I mean, (laughs) Kathy is very, you know, I said mercurial earlier, but she is like she her mood changes with the weather. You know, she can she's very adaptable kind of thing. So, I don't know. I didn't see that as, like, her faking or anything like that. She's just like, okay. (laughs) I'm not going to sit around and be miserable. Here's why critics love uh, Wuthering Heights. Critics love. Yeah, why is is Wuthering Heights? This is is from Pride, Prejudice, and Popcorn. Um, Critics love Wuthering Heights because it deals so eloquently with the effects of prejudice, isolation, class discrimination, patriarchy and child abuse on the individual. And I would add racism in there. Yeah. And then she says, I don't think an adaptation has to take on all of these issues, but it does have to communicate the idea that there are both societal and familial forces at work here. I should say too, that I keep referencing Pride, Prejudice and Popcorn. The author of it is named Carrie Sassarego. So I would love to read this book. Do you want to read that for like a future episode? Yeah, she's from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. Oh, great. Yeah, I love that website. Yeah, I will. We should absolutely we should absolutely do it. I know we were going to read uh, Camp Austin, and we were going to um, podcast about Bride and Prejudice, which we yeah, still Yeah, which will. we can Sorry. still do. Like, we had planned, We wa- I watched it, and we planned to talk about it, and I had to call Kristen and be like, I'm too sick. Like, we can't do this. And that's when we decided to go on hiatus. Because I like had tr- I had to like go to bed at seven o'clock every night. I was so exhausted all the time. Um, so but yeah, we'll definitely get to that. Just kind of like add it to the list. 
Yes. I'm so sorry that you went through that. And honestly, I watched Bride and Prejudice three times in preparation for that podcast. And I had the time of my life that weekend. So it's totally fine. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, yeah. yeah. That's yeah, really Kevin cool. loved it. Kevin loved it too. Oh, bless his heart. Like we'll definitely get to all this stuff that we kind of had to put on the back burner, but like, this is just, that sounds, this book sounds really interesting. And um, I love when like book and film stuff collides and there's all these different adaptations, which is one of the reasons why I think I'm drawn to Jane Austen. There's just so many different types of media um, oh, for sure. that have been made based on the novel, but mm-hmm. like Wuthering Heights, 1992 adaptation, it's going to have to be a thumbs down for me. Just look up screen caps of Ray Fiennes. He is very hot. Unless you do want like a good cry, good cry, or you just want to be in that, like, I'm not going to call it a romance, but unless if you want to be in that, like Gothic windswept more worlds you know get a bottle of wine go for it it was not my cup of tea yeah i i would honestly i would revisit this but i'd have to be in a very particular frame of mind but i thought it was a beautiful movie i thought it looked beautiful the acting was beautiful definitely touched me broke me down made me cry gave me a catharsis you know um guys just not for me. <laughs> <laughs> totally understand that. And if you would like to pop over to the Wheat Chief. <gasps> Let's go down to the Wheat Chief. There, um, I wanted to just shout out a couple of people. Natalie, who after we released our episode, who honestly, we posted the episode where we said we were going to do this fundraiser and you could make us read Bronte. And like... A couple hours after we posted it, I got this amazing email from her where she was like, your goal is totally achievable. She made a generous donation. And um, she said, you know, there's too much good quality art and literature out there to consume and waste time on, you know, books that don't do it for you. And she says, I remember reading Weathering Heights in high school and somehow loving it. Yeah, when I tried to read it again as an adult a few years ago, I bailed a couple chapters in. I don't know what was wrong with my teenage self. No, I think that's really telling. Like sometimes also, well, first of all, thank you, Natalie. Like, thank you for your donation. Thank you for your support. But that is an excellent point. Some things speak to you at different points of your life, right? So that's completely understandable and relatable, I think. Yes. And, you know, she says, I still have some love for Jane Eyre, though I recognize the more frustrating things about it. So, yeah, thank you for writing in. Really appreciate it. Um, Thank you to everybody who donated. I know we said at the beginning, but it bears repeating. Like, we're so grateful that everyone helped us, like, reach this goal. I mean, $200 probably doesn't seem like that lot. But to have people just, like, take even the time to make a donation and tell us about it, we're just so appreciative. Yeah, you guys are – I was super moved Super, super moved. It wasn't just Black Lives Matter. We had people from Australia who donated to um, funds related to indigenous populations in Australia, which I thought was amazing. Um, So I'm glad we sort of made it and sort of like a broader, whatever your particular cause is close to your heart, right? Okay, so next next shout out to Janae. And she's uh, written to us to just thank us for the podcast. We, re- we inspired her to reread Pride and Prejudice this year. And she says, I couldn't believe how much more I understood reading it as an adult. And Yay, uh, taking, <laughs> taking something different away from the same book with every reread. 
She also compliments our rapport. So thanks for being such a good friend, Maggie. I said, I am so glad I get to share Maggie with the world via my podcast. Aw, shut up. Thanks for writing in, Janae. Yeah, thank you, Janae. Also, I love your name. I think it's beautiful. I know, it's gorgeous. Well, Um, one of the things I've loved about doing this podcast with you, Kristen, is that it's been such a great way for us to... Like keep our friendship strong, even when you moved, even when you abandoned me and moved across the country. Like, I think we've become closer working on the podcast. We just like have such fantastic conversations and things like that. We can open up about issues that are deeper than if we just came over to like watch Game of Thrones and then went home or whatever. Like it forces you into an interface where you're constantly transmitting and receiving ideas and like you, be, you know a lot more about each other. So even if no one listens, I encourage you all to podcast. Start a podcast. <laughs> it's like, you know, because it prompts conversations. I will say I listened to this podcast. So as everybody knows, I'm not a podcast listener, but I started walking a lot at night because the weather is gorgeous out here when the sun goes down and just to get some exercise. And I was like, I'm tired of all the music on my phone. Let me finally try to or listen to a podcast. I, I listened to some of my favorite murder and I absolutely loved it. And then I thought, I wonder how our podcast holds up because I never hear the completed episodes. I only hear the janky episodes that I then have to edit all the crap out of, <laughs> right? So I get really irritated with myself. And I have to admit, one of the funny things about it, first of all, was uh, how much I disagreed with myself when I re-listened, when I thought, oh, there's a perfectly good counter-argument to what I'm yeah. saying right now. And I wanted to jump in and make, say, do better. You know, be oh, smarter. Oh, Kristen, you didn't consider X, Y, Z. Yes, exactly. I wanted to go back in time. And the other thing I learned is how much better the podcast is when I actually let you talk and say oh, things on a sweet. semi-regular basis. <laughs> that's very <laughs> sweet of you. <laughs> There have been some podcasts right, where I get so worked up and I'm and I can tell this is because I know myself, I can tell this is what's going on just by listening to my tone and my my speed of my speech. Sometimes I would start to say things and I would jump from idea to idea to idea. And I would know that in my heart, I was just really nervous and worried that I wouldn't be able to get all of it out and all my ideas out and that someone would interrupt me. But what I was saying was so important to me. And that's not conversation, and it's also not what people like to listen to. So when you listen to a podcast or re-listen to a podcast, or I just go on for like a full two, three minutes. Okay, Kristen, I'm going to stop you there. I'm going to let you finish. I'm going to let you finish. But no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, she's stopping me. Now I know I need to stop. When Maggie starts to say something, I should stop saying something. (laughs) Well, it's funny what you were saying about going back and listening and being like, oh, but wait, there's this. Because that's kind of what Natalie was saying about like revisiting Wuthering Heights and like you see different things or even um, also Janae with Pride and Prejudice, like you, you've, you have changed with time. And so your relationship with, not that our podcast is art, but your relationship with the media or with the piece of art, if it's a novel, you know, has also changed. Yes. So it's the podcast is kind of like reading your old diary in some ways because we talk about personal stuff. So maybe it's something like that where you're like, oh, young Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> How much you had to learn. So innocent. Well, yeah, I, I definitely, through our podcast, I always knew you were brilliant, but I don't think I ever realized how brave you are. Like when you moved cross country and 
you know, being so open with a lot of the things you've struggled with for our listeners. And then also for me, like, I am just so in awe of your bravery with stuff like that. I think it's incredible. So that's one of the reasons why I think the podcast has kind of brought us closer together. It's certainly given us some texture, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and a, um, a gimmick because, uh, you know, it's not like I, it's not like I'm an English professor or anything. So, uh, it's hard to bring something to the table with like, we're so knowledgeable about literary criticism, much easier to bring it to the table. Like, well, one of us is a fucking wreck and we're going to talk about that. And Jane Austen, so hope you <laughs> Wait, enjoy. are we talking about me or you? <laughs> You're talking about me, of course. Oh, oh, I would yes. say Wait, that am about. I the stable one? You're the stable one, believe it or Whoa. not. <laughs> at least to my mind I'm the stable genius of the relationship <laughs> so I meant to say this at the beginning of the podcast there's special vanity bonus content at the end of the podcast is it nudes um, it's not nudes it is in fact I have decided to treat everybody uh, which is totally unasked for by re- reading the first the first part of the first chapter of my new book <gasps> entitled Oracle. Yeah. So I am posting it in installments every week. I post, um, you know, three or four chapters on Inkit and on Wattpad. And so my idea was before publishing it as an ebook, I was just going to try to, you know, put it out there and maybe get some feedback and maybe talk, talk with some of the people who are reading it. And actually, I just, I don't self-promote very well. And and also, I have no platform, right? Like, I wrote my first book, like, five years ago. No one even remembers me who read it, right? Um, I loved your book. I own it on Kindle. I own it on audiobook. I thought it was fantastic. So don't listen to her. She's not objective. If you like (laughs) YA fantasy, the book is great. It's really good. Thank you. It's yeah. And the reason I feel comfortable reading this first part of this first chapter of Oracle is that actually one, I entered a statewide writing competition. I was notified by email that I had placed in the competition. And so I I, know that that's cool. I immediately emailed everybody I'd ever talked to in my whole life. And I said, I want a writing competition. And then when I learned that, did I get that email? I don't remember that. I know I didn't really email, but I did post about it on Facebook. So everybody I'd ever met would know. And then they, you know, cause they said you placed, and then they said, we'll tell you your final place in a couple of weeks or whatever, when we tally up the final score and figure out all the details. And I was like, great. I won first place, second place, or third place. That's (laughs) what placed means. And I wound up getting an honorable mention, which Oh, that's still incredible, though. Think about how many people probably entered. I got the comment sheets back, and um, one of them was like a 97, and the other one was like a 75. And I think the first one was a woman, and the second one was a man, which should give you the idea of the tone of this uh, book, because it is very girly. It is like chick lit fantasy. Yeah, but I really liked it. I think that's very interesting, though, that they give you... The scores. Yes. How well, that's so, really cool. So okay, do you want so to say should anything? We go ahead, should we say goodbye now and then you'll kick off the reading? Uh yeah, for sure. Already. Okay. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us on this uh, detour, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> uh and thank you again, everyone who donated, who 
helped us reach our goal to make this special Withering Heights episode. Thank you. Thank you. So appreciative. Like, I can't tell you how amazing it is that you all kind of just like stepped up and helped us out. We really appreciate it. Kristen, anything else that you want to say before we get into your chapter? I just want to echo that because everybody has been amazing. And I'm so grateful for you every day um, listening to me. It, It means more than you could know. You know, thank you so much, you guys. We love you. Love you. And you know what? We've delighted you long enough. I haven't delighted you long enough. Oh, yeah. Stick around, Kristen. I'm about to to (laughs) delight you some more. Fingers crossed. Let me tell you, last thing I'll say before I start reading is that I'm not a, um, obviously, a voice actor. And so one of the characters in this reading has a accent. It's supposed to sound kind of like a Scottish accent, but I am not going to oh, don't. Yeah, no, I am don't. not going to try to do an accent and so you'll just have to use your imagination and what really sucks is I just realized my laptop defaulted to its crappy mic and not my good podcasting mic so at least I fixed it now but I can't fix it for the podcast I'm really sorry anyway oracle chapter one marta There's no easy way to tell your future husband that the large gold statue of Apollo he commissioned is horribly tacky. I feigned some mild interest in our city's newest work of art, using it as an excuse to join Paulus as he stood at the fountain's edge. I was careful to leave a polite amount of space between us. He gazed handsomely at the statue in silence, his profile upright and senatorial. His eyes looked very green in the sunlight. I played with my jewelry as I watched him take in all its gaudy, shiny glory. I was as close to him as I had ever been, close enough to chance making a friendly offhand comment as one does to a stranger, and to my infinite regret I found I didn't have a single compliment for him. He tilted his head back to see the top of the statue and it must have given him a touch of vertigo because he lost his balance and had to support himself on the edge of the reflecting pool. Suddenly he didn't seem so unapproachable. Inspiration struck, and I took the opportunity to speak. Apollo doesn't get much attention in the capital, I ventured. It's nice to see a statue of him in such a visible place. Paulus looked at me with half a smile. I quite agree, he said, in his odd Apollonian way, the sing-song lilt, marking him out as a southerner. Paulus wasn't really my future husband. It was just a private joke that my unfeeling friend Cassius made once, then caught me blushing in response and realized he could torture me about my crush any time he wanted. He teased me mercilessly about it at every opportunity, saying various obscene or amorous things to me in an exaggerated version of Paulus's southern accent. At the sound of Paulus's real voice, Cassius's worst sing-song taunts come back to haunt me. Oh, darling, I'll take you home to Apollonia and make love to you on a moonlit mountainside. We'll know the passion of a thousand goats in heat. Just the memory made my face grow hot. Do you know who the girl in the sculpture is supposed to be? I asked Paulus to cover my embarrassment. It looks like she's fleeing in desperation from our god of light and reason. Ah, that's Daphne, he said, his odd lilt making his statement sound like a question. A wood nymph, unwilling to lose her virginity. Her father, a river god, turned her into a tree to preserve her virtue. That's supposed to be bark on her legs, he added, seeing me squint at the pathetic imitation of laurel wood that was sculpted around her feet. I looked at him, incredulous. You commissioned a statue of Daphne and Apollo? Paulus raised his eyebrows, then regarded me more closely. Do you know who I am? he asked. Oh, gods, I had revealed too much. 
I just know you're a senator and that you had this statue installed, I told him. I had no idea I was so recognizable. You're quite well known, I said more confidently, after your speech on the funding the extension of the city walls. I heard the High Priest of Mars was very impressed by it. He smiled at me. Please forgive the liberty, he said in his polite way, but I have to ask, why do you object to a depiction of Daphne? I mean, I suppose I don't object to it, I answered, wary of offending him. I'm only surprised. It's not a very nice story, is it? Oh, I like the story, he said, looking back at the statue. It's very sweet, a love story. Maybe you don't know the end of it. Apollo couldn't turn Daphne back into a nymph, so he made the laurel tree his symbol. He protects her. Laurel leaves don't easily decay. On the other hand, I said, now she's a tree. He frowned as though he didn't quite understand my point. We were interrupted by a small bird that fluttered down and alighted on Apollo's outstretched hand. We both watched it apprehensively. I feared we were about to witness an unfortunate christening of the new installation. There was something in the bird's chirp that made me think it wasn't well. It opened its little beak as though it wanted to speak to us, fluffed its feathers, and started chattering. Paulus and I exchanged glances as the bird grew even more agitated. I wondered if there was something we could do for it. But it was too late. The bird expired in front of us with a final cheep. Oh, I said faintly, I think it's dead. I think you're right, Paulus said, raising his foot on the rim of the reflecting pool. I'll retrieve it so we can have a look. I realized in shock that he was about to wade into the pool. For Vesta's sake, stop, I said, sounding a little like my mother. You're wearing three yards of wool. What are you going to do when you soak your toga? That's a good point, he said, smiling at me. I suppose you're right again. He returned to the ground and started unwinding the ridiculous length of fabric that senators are still forced to wear as a matter of tradition. Despite the heat of summer, Paulus wore a light tunic and linen trousers underneath the toga. When he got the full length of it off, he piled it on the ground, splashed into the waist-high water, and waded under Apollo's hand. I could see that his efforts were going to be totally pointless. The statue cleared his grasp by a good three feet. "'You'll never reach it!' I called to him over a splashing. "'Also, it's a dead bird. Just leave it alone!' He wasn't dissuaded in the least." We need it, he responded. It's an omen. Realization finally dawned on me. Oh, Fortuna, I said, wading into the pool after him. Southerners and their useless prophecies, I thought. You're not tall enough on your own, I said, and gestured towards Apollo's outstretched hand. Hoist me up. That's most obliging of you, he said, and he seized me around the waist and lifted me as high as he could. What is happening in my life right now? I asked myself. Not only was Paulus holding me in public, he was lifting me over his head like some kind of victory prize. When he saw we still weren't tall enough, he splashed me down into the pool and moved his grip around my hips, then hoisted me up again. This morning, the thought of Paulus touching me in any context would have been an amusing daydream. Now it was glorious reality. I tried not to focus on the heat and pressure from his arms wrapped tightly around me and flailed in my attempt to retrieve the bird, which had surely died of some kind of disgusting bird plague, which would ultimately be the death of me. A small price to pay for spending a minute in his arms. Other senators had started to collect in the entrance to the Senate, some passing with glances of curiosity and others staring outright. I ignored them and reached desperately for the bird. 
When I proclaimed my success, Paulus dropped me into the pool again and cupped his hands around the lifeless little puffball, fascinated. What is it? he asked, looking at me. It's a bird. No, he said, exhaling. I mean, is it a swallow or a wren? I looked at it more closely and saw the bird was, or had been, brightly colored and rather pretty, with an iridescent blue belly and a brilliant yellow throat. I recognized the species. I don't know their proper name, I said, but at home, we used to call them bee-eaters. Bee-eaters? he repeated, and he didn't sound happy. Is that bad? I asked. After a moment, he relaxed, but he didn't answer my question. We don't have these in Apollonia, he said in his mild sing-song way. Too cold in the mountains, I expect. He started to use his fingers to pry the bird's beak open, then gasped and dropped it into the water. With astonishment, I saw a bee sting on his fingertip. Thunder rolled in the distance. He looked from his stung finger to me and back again. It must be an omen, I said. What does it mean? I don't know, he said thoughtfully, but I suspect it's not favorable. I gave an unimpressed snort. A cough drew our attention to the gathering crowd of senators, and I started to feel exposed. They were all watching us. I started to worry for Paulus's image as a decorous, respectable public figure. As the Senate's youngest ever member, he could not really afford to be embarrassing himself, splashing around in fountains with young women in public. I bent down and grabbed the bird, which had been floating around my legs. Thank you so much for helping me rescue my pet, I said to him, in a girlish voice designed to carry. You were so very kind. There was silence while everybody mentally adjusted to this lie. Senator, one of them addressed Paulus, I am sorry to interrupt, but I believe the first speaker is about to take the floor. Paulus nodded as though nothing was out of the ordinary, and turned to me. I'm sorry your little bird didn't survive, he said, unnaturally loudly, and made his way to the edge of the pool. When he gained the ground, he gallantly turned around to help me out after him. The older men had already started shuffling into the Senate. Thank you for your help. Paula said quickly, giving me a small incline of his head as he wadded up his toga in his free arm. I'm very grateful. And he followed the other men inside. It wasn't until after he left me alone at the fountain that I realized he'd never even asked my name.